Well, I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open up to Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 31 to 37. Uh, he has done all things well, is the name of to this morning's message, and you'll see why, because it's right there in the text. It is one of the most bizarre texts that we've encountered in Mark. And this is what we do when we preach, is we go through section by section, verse by verse, line by line, sometimes even word by word, and we do our best to unpack what God has said. And what you do when you commit to doing that kind of teaching is you encounter passages of Scripture that are, for lack of a better term, a little bit bizarre, a little bit strange. That if I were up here deciding my favorite verses to preach on, I probably wouldn't pick this odd passage. But God wants us to learn uh, from Him and His wisdom. And so we trust His perfect wisdom as we go through a text that He has this for us. So we wrestle with the words. We see what Jesus is doing. We try to learn what God has for us. So here we are. You're there in your Bibles with John or with Mark chapter 7, verse 31. And I'm going to read it, and then we're going to start working through it. And hopefully you'll have a better understanding of this text, and you'll be able to see how it applies to us even this morning. Verse 31. Then he, that's Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. Or in looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So how many questions do you have about these verses after reading through them? Probably several questions. Why the spit, the fingers in the ears? Why the secrecy, Jesus? Tell no one? What's going on here? So we need to, I think, understand this passage by zooming out. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to zoom way out. And we're going to understand where this fits in the grand scheme of redemption. And I think in doing that, we will have a much better understanding of these particular verses and what God is revealing to us in his word right here. So here's where we need to go is think of it this way, that this text actually has one hand on Revelation, the very end of the Bible, and one hand in Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, that this text uh, spans the whole storyline, that we understand what's going on here that we are able to piece together uh, the grand scheme of redemption and understand what Jesus is even doing here, what he's doing in the text, what he's doing in the world in which he came. And by understanding 
uh, the grand scheme, we can see it makes a lot more sense out of these instances. So let's go back to Genesis. I'm sure many of you have read Genesis. And if you were to read Genesis chapter 1 in particular, there would be one phrase that is repeated again and again and again throughout the first chapter of Genesis. I wonder if you know what it is. After creating each individual aspect of creation, God says, it is good. It's good. It says, God saw that it was good. Land and sea, they're good. Sun and moon, they're good. Plants and vegetation, good. All of these things are good. Animals are good. And then he creates humankind. He creates Adam and Eve. And what does he say? It's very good. That's the end of the first chapter of the Bible, is the goodness of creation. It's all good. It's all valued by God. It is inherently uh, pleasant and delightful and pleasing to God. All creation is good. And then you know quite quickly what happens after that is that mankind is plunged into sin. Adam and Eve disobey God's commands. And they eat of the forbidden fruit. And what enters into the world is evil. You know the story that they in eating this forbidden fruit are then made corrupt. That they experience spiritual death. Remember what God said that would happen to them if they ate from the forbidden tree. Is that they would die. And immediately what happens is not their physical death. They don't drop down dead upon eating the fruit of the tree. Rather, what happens is that they die spiritually. There is now a separation between them and God. And so there's a spiritual death that enters into the world and is passed down throughout all humanity. All humanity then is corrupt. All humanity is morally corrupt. The heart has become evil. And this is why we can look around in the world and see what's going on and understand it from a theological perspective. The problems in our world fundamentally are because humanity is broken, corrupt, sinful, estranged from God. That is the fundamental problem. But that's not the only problem that is introduced in Genesis, the early chapters. In chapter 3, verse 17, God also says, listen to this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So there is introduced into the world another kind of difficulty. Not only has humanity become sinful and corrupt, estranged from God and dysfunctional in their relationships and blame-shifting and even treating one another with violence and evil. We see this in the early chapters when, when the first children of Adam and Eve, one kills the other. So there's the evil and wickedness in the world. But we also see that creation itself is subject to a curse. See that? That creation itself is now going to be unwieldy, uh, unable to be uh, brought into submission by the people that God has put over it. Adam and Eve were given everything. They are the richest people to have ever lived. It, li it was literally all theirs. And they failed. And they sinned. And now the creation that they rule over is broken. It does not, to it does not submit any longer to their whims and their desires. The, the creation is wild. It becomes a howling wilderness. And this is why we are introduced to what theologians sometimes call natural evil. The moral evil in the world is the evil that comes from the human heart. 
the evil that's sprouting and flowing and springing from the corrupt human wickedness that is existing in every human heart. But there's another kind of evil, what is called a natural kind of evil that has plagued our world. The tsunami that wipes out thousands of homes and takes many lives. The earthquake that causes buildings to crumble and economies to collapse. Diseases that ravage a world. These could be called natural evils. You don't point the finger and blame someone for these types of things. These are part, this is part of living in a cursed creation. Famines that leave millions starving. The creation is under a curse. And guess what? You are part of the creation. And therefore you, in your very body, experience some of this natural evil. Our bodies, being created and being subject to this curse, are not what they ought to be. They are not what they were originally made to be, as Adam and Eve's bodies were in the very beginning. People are born with things that are wrong with their bodies. Deformities, disabilities, diseases. Some of you know exactly what I am speaking of when I say that our bodies are sometimes plagued by pain, suffering. They don't function like we ought, they ought to function or like we'd wish they'd function. Arthritis, autoimmune disorders, cri- crippled arms or legs, extreme and prolonged fatigue, fibromyalgia, unpredictable migraines, Stomach pain that has no explanation. Tooth pain, back pain, insomnia, various things that we experience in our physical bodies that bring about all manner of suffering. And many of us will experience such things until we die. It's part of the natural evil that has been introduced to the creation because of the fall of our first parents. Natural evil, no one is to blame. This is, except I guess we could blame Adam and Eve, uh, but we do not say that because you're born blind, you are therefore uh, suffering some punishment because of your sin. In fact, this very instance happened. You can recall John chapter 9. The disciples are walking with Jesus, and they pass a blind man, and they have this theological question that comes into their mind. Here's a blind guy sitting on the side of the road. Hey, Jesus, who sinned that this man is blind? Like, whose fault is it that this man was born blind? If you remember uh, what Jesus' response was, he basically rejects the premise of their question. He rejects even giving any idea that someone might be guilty, and that's why someone's blind. That's why the man's blind. What he says is this. He says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents. That's not the reason that he was born blind. He says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. No one's guilty, and that's why this guy's blind. It's not that his parents sinned. That's why he's blind. It's not that he was going to sin, so God made him blind. It's not any of that. God had a purpose in making this guy blind. It's part of his revealing of his own glory, and he would go on to heal this man. God had his purposes in it. And so we come to our text. It's a long introduction, a theological introduction, to come to our text where we meet a man 
who is a victim of natural evil. He has not sinned to become a deaf mute. His parents have not sinned. At least we don't get any indication of this in the text. And as a result of their sin, this man is a deaf mute. This is just him experiencing the suffering of living in a fallen world with a fallen body. And I'm sure many of you can identify with him. If you Maybe you can't identify with the deafness or the inability to talk. I know many of you can talk. You can talk just fine. Maybe you can't identify with his particular issues. But maybe you can identify with what it's like to live with pain. What it's like to suffer in the body. What it's like to experience physical problems that prevent you from enjoying life like everyone else. I know some of you in this very congregation experience these very things. And so this has very... Uh, very uh, a very pertinent message for us this morning. Here's the outline I'm going to give you as we work through this text. Four questions. I hope it does help us understand this text better. That's the aim, of course, of every good sermon is to help you understand the text better. And so I'm going to arrange uh, the explanation of this text into four questions. Four questions that we want to answer about these verses, and hopefully you walk away understanding this and also treasuring our Savior even more. Question number one is why this account. Why is this even in the Bible? Why did Mark include this? Secondly, why this bizarre procedure, fingers in the ears, spitting, touching tongue, like all kind of weird. Why, why does he do this? Third, why does Jesus then silence the people he's just, the, the man he's just healed and the people who just saw the healing? Why does he silence them? What's, what's going on there? And then lastly, what does it all mean? What, is he, what does this all mean for us? So this will help you engage in the text and understand it better. I would encourage you, if you have a copy of the Bible, open it up and follow along. It will help you see and draw from the text itself God's words. And you can learn, even as we study together, how to study for yourself. So let's first ask the question, why this account? Why is this in the Bible? Matthew didn't include this account. Luke and John didn't include this account. The other gospel writers didn't include anything about this guy, but Mark did. Mark thought this was valuable enough to put in the scriptures. It's interesting because there's all kinds of healings. There's all kinds of healings all through the gospels and different men and women that came to Jesus and experienced healing. And not all of them get this kind of attention to detail. This guy does. This particular individual gets a whole paragraph designated to showing how Jesus healed him. It might be because of the bizarre things that happened. Mark remembered it and wanted to include it. It could be for other reasons, and I think we'll find that there's some instructive reasons why this is included in the Scriptures. Let's look at the verses themselves. Verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre. Remember, he went up there in chapter 7, the same chapter, verse 24. He was up and he had the encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. We looked at that last week. So he returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. In your English Bible, as you read that, you probably would just pass through it and not think twice about what is being said there. Uh, But if you were to pull out a map, you would see that Jesus is kind of doing some weird stuff here. This, uh, This route, if you trace it from Tyre to Sidon and then to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis, is like a big upside down horseshoe. He's going in a big... Uh, loop-de-loop kind of route. This would be like, just to give you an example of what this might look like, it'd be 
like saying, uh, hey, I'm going to go to San Diego. Uh, I'm driving down the, with the family to San Diego after church today. And you say, well, what freeway are you going to take? And I say, well, I'm going to get to San Diego via Big Bear. Like I'm going to go up there and uh, on the way to San Diego, I'm going. Like there's some people who think that like every place is on the way to the other place. Like some places are not on the way. <laughs> like that's not on the way. You got to, you know, tell them. There, there's some, uh, so this is what's happening here. Sidon is not on the way to the Decapolis. Sidon is the opposite direction. From Tyre to Sidon is about 20 miles north. Uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis is the opposite direction. What is Jesus doing? What's going on here? Well, what he's doing is most likely, if you remember in the previous sections, Jesus has been attempting to get some time with his disciples to rest, to talk. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is trying to focus on his disciples and teach them and disciple them and train them for the time that he departs. And so I think what he's, his new plan is, is we just got to keep walking. Because the crowds are swarming us wherever we go. So we're going to walk up, and we're going to walk east, and we're going to walk south, and we're going to walk, and as we walk, we're talking. And this would have taken days, if not weeks, for him to make this journey. And during that time, they're actually getting uninterrupted time together as these disciples listen to their master, as they learn from Jesus. Uh, This is what they're doing. It says then that they get to the region of the Decapolis, which would have been in the north of the Sea of Galilee, Decapolis in Greek could literally be translated ten cities. These ten kind of Greek cities were up there. This is mainly a Greek-speaking community or uh, Greek-speaking cities. And so they head to this region. And it says there in verse 32 that they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. The they there in verse 32 is not made clear. We don't know who it is. We know that they're part of a crowd, which is there in verse 33, that there was a crowd that it was you know, wherever Jesus goes, there's a crowd. So there's some segment of the crowd sees him and goes after him, and they bring to Jesus a man who's described as being deaf, he cannot hear, and he has a speech impediment. A speech impediment. This is a inf- fascinating word that's being that used here by Mark to describe this man. Deaf was a more common word, the word that's used there, but the word that is used for speech impediment is a a unique word that's only used once in the entire New Testament. And the only other place you'll find this word, the Greek word is magillalos. The only other place you'll find magillalos is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 35. Tuck that away. We'll talk about that in a second. So this unique word is describing the problem this man has. It's like his tongue is tied. Maybe it's because he has not been able to hear. If you can't hear people speak, you can't learn how to speak, so he cannot speak. He has a speech impediment. He is magillalos. And it says that this group came and they started begging. They begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Perhaps they wanted Jesus to heal. Maybe they just wanted him to pray. But certainly they'd heard about his power, and so they're begging Jesus to do something about this man. This man who is magillalos. This man who is tongue-tied, this man who cannot hear, this man who cannot speak. Imagine for a moment, just to use your imagination, what it might be like to be unable to hear and unable to speak. There's a certain kind of isolation that you would have from normal society. You can't learn what everyone learns. You can't communicate with anyone else. They can't hear you speak because you can't hear them. There's no two-way communication. Only a special group of people, maybe a mother that cared for this person, would be able 
to try to create some method of communication, but everyone else would have been utterly cut off from this person, and this person would have been utterly cut off from them. This is what this person experienced in his life. This is what he went through. This was the kind of natural evil that he was facing. He was a victim of being born into a world that's cursed and that's fallen, and he suffered dearly. He didn't enjoy the relationships and the normal blessings of a society that we would enjoy. He's, he's stuck. He's deaf. He can't get any input, no messages, no truth, no message from Christ about the need of repentance, no message about who God is. He can't hear this stuff. He can't speak. He can't ask questions. He can't try to figure it out. Complete isolation. I want to show you, I think, what Mark is doing, though, and why this account is in the Scriptures, because that word, Magillalos, the, the speech impediment, I think becomes the key to understanding what's happening here. And uh, to, to explain this, I want you to go back in your Bibles to Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah starting in chapter 34. And I'm just going to show you what's happening and show you what word Mark is alluding to and why he's doing it. Because I think if you were reading this and you were familiar with the Old Testament and you studied it, you would have said, huh, what an interesting word to use, Mark. I wonder why you used it. And you would go back and you would find that same exact word being used in a very interesting passage in Isaiah. Go to chapter 34, Isaiah chapter 34. And if you start in verse 1, where we encounter the prophet Isaiah uh, announcing a judgment on the nations. Uh, Verse 1, draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Listen to this. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. That's the context of Isaiah 34. Skip upward to verse 8. He's still announcing judgment. Listen to how he describes the judgment. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. Imagine a nice blue flowing river, fish jumping out, and green growing on the side. Isaiah's prophecy is that river will be turned into tar, gross, nothing to drink, not able to sustain life. The land is going to be judged. Verse 9 the streams of Edom be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Nothing can grow here. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. He's speaking in this kind of graphic imagery about the judgment that is to come on all the nations. And so that's what Isaiah 34 is describing, this, this picture of the judgment of God on the world. But then, chapter 35, it's like a symphony that's been in the minor key all of a sudden turns into a major key. And look at chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Changes his tone. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon 
shall they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those of an ancient heart, be strong, fear not. Now listen to this. Behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, and He will come and save you. Wow. In the midst of this judgment, we get this picture of God intervening. God coming into the judgment and saving the people. So the people are not to be fearing in verse 4. But what will He do? What will it look like when He appears? Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Sound familiar? Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the Magillalos, the mute, the same exact word there in Mark 37:32, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In other words, Isaiah is describing a coming day in the midst of judgment that the Messiah comes, the Messiah is God himself. He enters into His creation. And what is the sign that it is God coming? What is the sign that it's the true Messiah? It's this, that eyes that have never seen are now seeing, that ears that cannot hear begin to be able to hear, and the mouth that cannot speak is loosed. The mute begin to sing. Why does Mark include that very strange word about what it, the speech impediment I think it is to draw our attention back to the Isaiah account and say Jesus must be that very prophesied God who comes into His creation to bring the restoration of His people. In other words, Jesus is not just some healer. He's not some guru. He's not some wonder worker magician. Jesus is God incarnate coming into the world to grant blind eyes to be able to see and deaf ears to be able to hear and the lame people the weak and those who cannot speak to be having their tongues loose so they can sing. Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's why Mark includes this. He's pointing to us back to this old prophecy and saying, look, Jesus is Him. Jesus is that Messiah, not a mere teacher. And I wonder what you have come to think about Jesus. Many people respect Jesus, if not all people. You don't need to be a Christian to respect Jesus, to want to learn from his teachings. You can think very highly of Jesus, but there's something different about understanding that he is God who entered the the creation, that he is the Messiah long prophesied to bring about the restoration of this broken world, that he is the one who comes to offer salvation and forgiveness of sins to those who trust Him. He is no mere mortal. He he came in human flesh to live as a man, to die on behalf of humanity, so that anyone who repents and believes in Him can be forgiven and reconciled to God. He's not just a guru wonder worker. He's God incarnate, the only Savior of the whole world. God in the flesh. And no one comes back to the Father except through Him. And Mark wants to make sure we know that. And that's why this account of Him healing this particularly uh, crippled man in the way He did. So that's the first question. Why this account? It shows us a little more about the true identity of the Savior. Here's a second question. Why this bizarre procedure? So you asked that question when we read the text, right? Did 
why did he do that? Like take his ears and, and stick them, or his hands and stick them into his ears? Like that would just be weird. If you're the guy, you're wondering, what are you doing? Um, don't touch me though. That's just, I, I don't like wet willies. I, I don't prefer that. But, but Jesus does this whole thing and then he spits. Like he spits and touches the tongue. Like you could be arrested for that these days. Like that is not sanitary. But, but Jesus does this whole procedure. Why? It says he put his fingers in the ears, he spit, he touched his tongue, he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and then he said this word that had to be translated, Ephatha. Ordinarily, Jesus healed people in different ways. I mean, this is so bizarre because this is not the way. I mean, if this was the only way that Jesus healed people, we would think oh, that's just what Jesus does. But, but ordinarily, there's three ways that Jesus ordinarily healed people. One was that he commands verbally the healing to take place and the man or the woman gets healed. It's a verbal command. Secondly, uh, often Jesus would touch someone just one time and they would be healed, as in the case in Mark chapter 1 of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He touches her and she is healed. But most of the time, the healing occurs when the sick, in faith, reaches out to Jesus and they touch him and they are healed that way. Uh, Those are the ordinary ways. This just seems out of character, doesn't it? What's the deal? What's going on? Well, I think there's a a couple things going on here. Uh, First of all, I I think because this man could not hear and could not speak, and so ordinary ways of communication were not available to him, that Jesus was doing something physically, tangibly, visibly, so that this man could see it and understand. What's fascinating is, is if you read accounts of other people during the first century, there were actually people who went around and posed as wonder workers and magicians, and they would uh, claim to heal people, and they would use spittle. They'd use human spittle. It was a common belief that uh, that that water, uh, that human, that we'll say water, uh, had he, uh, life properties in it. And we actually can totally identify that. You water your plants because the water enables them to grow. But they took it to the next level. They thought that water that came from a living creature would have more life properties in it, and so they would. Sometimes these wonder workers, these gurus, would use their spittle as a way of exercising their magic. I don't believe Jesus thought that what he th- thought that's what he was doing. Like he was adopting uh, their methods and using spittle in that way. I actually think what Jesus was doing was using something this Greek-speaking man from the Decapolis would understand. He's touching the ears as if to say, "I'm about to heal your ears. I'm gonna spit to show." That you, you understand this. The, the, this is something that you would understand. I'm going to spit to show that I'm about to heal you. And I'm going to touch your tongue to show that your tongue is about to be loosed. He's doing things in very physical, uh, visible ways to demonstrate what he will do with this man. Verse 34, it says that, and looking up to heaven, I believe this Maybe two explanations for why. First of all, he wants to show the man who cannot hear where he gets his power from. It's not this magical stuff that he's doing. He looks up as if to say, this is where the power comes from, from my heavenly father. And it says that he sighs. He takes a deep breath. And many believe that what Jesus is doing in this instance is praying, that he is praying. Praying to God that his sigh is a sigh of prayer. It's also a sigh of 
empathy and compassion that he sighs. He feels very much the pain that this man has experienced. And then he speaks, and he speaks ephmetha, this Aramaic word that Greek-speaking people would not have understood. That's why he translates it there. And what he says is be opened. And it seems as if Mark includes these words to make it clear that it wasn't some magic, hocus-pocus, alacadabra, whatever word that he was saying, that the power was in the work of God that Jesus, by his word, is bringing this man free from his chains. The, the chains on his tongue are loosed. The freedom to be able to hear is there now made available for him. Jesus does something to show that he will heal this man. It's so compassionate. It's so gentle. It's so tender. Uh, Jesus is gentle and kind and patient with this man who cannot communicate. It's as if he's lowering himself to this man's level and ensuring that he understands what he's doing with him. What it says happens, look there at verse 35. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. I mean, he begins to speak. He didn't need to learn the language. I mean, I don't know how long this guy had, had been unable to talk or how long he had been deaf. It, it doesn't say, but enough that it's been a plaguing him for a while that he can't speak right. But as soon as the ears are open, as soon as his tongue is released, he's speaking normally. He's speaking ordinarily. And not only does he want to speak, you get ahead, he wants to preach. It says there that word in the end of verse 36 that they went on and proclaimed. It's the actual word that's used to speak of preaching, like the word that has the idea of standing and announcing the, the realities of God and, and giving them to people. This guy not only wants to say that God has saved him, that Jesus, this Messiah, has come and healed him. He wants to preach about it. He wants to zealously preach. But he gets stopped. I, I mean, this is another one of the baffling parts of this passage, isn't it? That Jesus, as soon as this guy can finally talk, Jesus says, now be quiet. Don't go tell anyone. Like, Wow, like this, the tongue is loosed. He wants to shout from the rooftops the, the glory of this Messiah who can bring uh, the, the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And Jesus says, no, nope, don't tell anyone. And I sympathize with the guy who goes and tells everyone. <laughs> I mean, what are you to say if someone says, how are you hearing me now? How are you speaking now? Uh, I can't tell, sorry. I mean, he... he 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 tells them. So he should have obeyed Jesus. He should have obeyed Jesus. At the same time, we understand that it would have been such a remarkable miracle that he would have a hard time uh, not telling someone. And so we get to our third point. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus tell this man and the people who were there with him not to tell anyone? And if you've been with us in Mark, you know that this has come up again and again and again. You remember this? Go, you're in Mark. Go to chapter 1. This has been happening repeatedly. That Mark just records Jesus time and time again after a remarkable miracle. Be silent. Don't tell anyone. Chapter 1, verse 34. He casts out demons, but he won't commit or he won't allow the demons to speak. Chapter 1, verse 44. He heals the leper. And then he says, see that you say nothing to anyone. Chapter 3, turn the page. 
He cast out many demons, and it says that he, verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Chapter 5, verse 43, he raises the girl from the dead, and it says that he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And then we get to our text, and it's the same thing. He says that that no one should know about this. Skip ahead to chapter 8, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30, where he reveals that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And then he says to them, he says, verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I'm the Messiah. I'm the long-predicted son of David who has come into the world. Don't tell anyone. Like, he's doing this again and again and again. And some scholars have been baffled by this. Why does he do this? And then Mark chapter 9, verse 9, and this is where we actually begin to see the key for understanding why he's been so secretive. Look at chapter 9. The transfiguration has just taken place. Jesus is revealing his true identity, that he, in fact, is divine. He's the Son of God. He's been revealing this all along through his miracles, through his power, through his healing, through his teaching. But here he visualizes it. He peels back the layer of his humanity and shows his divinity to his disciples. And then it says in chapter 9, verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Now that's just like every other one. But look at what he says. Until. So now there's a different direction. Don't tell anyone. And then he says, Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Which is to say, after the resurrection, have at it. Tell everyone. Tell all people. And that's why we have the scriptures today, because they did a good job. They started telling people. They wrote wrote it down. They recorded all of this stuff. And now to this day, the the message of what Jesus has done and what he's doing is being spread throughout all the world. But they were not supposed to tell prior to the resurrection. Why? What's going on? Let's unpack that. Here's what I think it means. It means this, that all along, as Jesus is healing, as Jesus is doing these miracles, he's bringing sight to the blind he's bringing the lepers to be healed he's doing all these things and all along this massive crowd is growing around him and listening to him and many of the people in this crowd if not most do not understand who he is why are they following him they want to be healed they want to get their arm healed or their leg healed or the disease taken care of or their daughter to be healed they're not understanding who he is they're not understanding his identity And they're also not then listening to his teaching about the need to repent and believe. They're just there for the hype. They're there for the healing. And so Jesus has been saying, no, 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 no. Uh, You cannot understand who I am if all you come to me for is this healing. I think this is very instructive. There are people who are only coming to Jesus to be healed. Physically, bodily. Like, that's the whole reason they want Jesus, is that God will heal their problem. God will fix their crippled body. God will take away that pain. And so they come to Jesus looking to him to be a healer. But they have not listened to his message. They have not listened to his call to repent. They have not learned who Jesus truly is and what he demands of the world. And all of these miracles will not be understood rightly until they are understood in the context of the fact that he died and rose again, therefore proving that he is God incarnate and that he demands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. 
the resurrection is like the top of the puzzle, the box. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine you get all the pieces and they're poured out in front of you and you're looking at each piece one by one and it doesn't make quite much sense. You're, okay, what is, how does this fit? What does this fit? And you might think that uh, you might get a totally misunderstood idea of what the puzzle picture is meant to be. But then you get the top of the puzzle and you go, oh, this is how it all fits together. And then you can put it all together. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection says you cannot really understand all these healings until you see the resurrection because the resurrection shows that he conquered sin in his death and he rose from the dead and he's alive now and you do not merely come to Jesus to get your bodies healed. That will happen, but you it'll happen in the end, but you come to Christ to get your sins forgiven, to get your sins taken care of. Because you understand that on that cross in his death, that he was the propitiation, he was the substitutionary atonement. He bore the wrath of the Father in our place so that we might not have to bear it ourselves. So that we could have our sins forgiven. And then he rose from the dead to prove and to validate all that he did and all that he said. So we only understand Jesus rightly in light of his death and in light of his resurrection. And that's why they did not want Jesus did not want everyone to know about all these miracles apart from his death and resurrection. He is saying in, his resurre- in these healings that I am the Messiah who lifts the curse. I am the one who comes to be the Savior of the world, the prophesied Son of David. I will be the one who ushers in the kingdom. I will redeem my people and establish that kingdom. I am going to lift the curse. I am going to restore creation. And you will know for sure when I die and I rise. But if you only look at my miracles and you only come to me for my miracles, you will not understand who I am. Because those are only meant to point to something greater. So be quiet. Don't just get people caught up in the hype. Help them see the greatness of who I truly am in my death and resurrection. So what does this all mean? I understand this is very much a heady text. We've got to explain a lot to get to it. But what happens there is uh, they're, they're zealously proclaiming it. In verse 37, it says that they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What does this all mean? They can't stay silent. They goes on speaking. And the things that they're saying, what they're preaching to the people who will listen, is that this Messiah, this Jesus, does all things well. Those words are actually reminiscent of the benediction in chapter 1 of Genesis that God did all things well when he created the world. And here is Jesus now restoring that broken creation and lifting a piece of the curse off this man. And the 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 the, the declaration as he has done this is this he has done all things well Uh, this man didn't have a lot of theology necessarily when he was healed in this way he didn't know much but what we notice this is that he did not listen to this he, he did not as soon as his tongue was unloosed say why jesus all these years of isolation all these years where I couldn't hear anyone, all these years I couldn't talk to anyone, all these years of suffering and pain, why did you put me through this? 
This was not fair, Jesus. God, why? He, he does not do that. He does not. I wonder if we in our own lives, we're experiencing some of the pain and we have not yet been healed and we say, God, why this pain? Why this suffering? Why this deformity? Why this disability? Why this disease? But it is the heart of the Christian who trusts his Father to believe down in our bones. He does all things well. He has done all things well. His timing is perfect. He will lift the curse off of creation someday. He will do that. And we may never experience the pain of our own bodies being lifted in this life, but the promise of the gospel is, yes, our sins will be forgiven, and that one day we will experience the wholeness that God has promised to us. Our bodies will be set free from bondage to decay and corruption. That will happen, but maybe never in this life. Some of us may suffer with pain in our bodies till the day we die. But it is the heart of the Christian, as it was the heart of these people, to say, He does all things well. And so we wait patiently for the full restoration of our bodies in the day that He comes and He makes all things new. His timing is perfect. I'm reminded of the story of James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor and a theologian. He was a pastor of a big church, and at one point in his life, toward the end, he got diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. From the day of his diagnosis to the day he died, it took about six weeks. It killed him quickly. But in the midst of those six weeks, he announced it to the congregation that he had this cancer, and his church was heartbroken. And many of the people in the congregation began with really good intentions to offer all manner of ways to get the cancer out of him, all kinds of different ways to be healed. And they had all these doctors to recommend and things to take and things to do. And they were more frenzied than he was upon hearing the message of his own cancer. And so at one point he got up before his church and he said, Listen, don't worry about me. I know my Savior. He does all things well. And I think as we read this passage, one of the things we are meant to take away is the same message that the crowds took away, that the people took away, is that we must be convinced that He, he does all things well. And can you say in the midst of your suffering whether you have been healed or whether you will never be healed, can you have this conviction that the day that He brings to you the full restoration of your bodies, whether it's soon or whether it's later, whether it's at the very end or whether it's tomorrow, can you say, He does all things well. I trust Him. That He can heal me. But if He chooses not to, I will worship Him still. If He removes the pain, I will praise Him. And if the pain persists, I will praise Him still. So this text reaches back into Genesis and shows us that we are in this good but very broken world. And we all are subject to the natural evil of the curse in various ways and to various degrees. But it also reminds us there is coming a day that Jesus himself will look into our eyes and he, according to Revelation 21, will wipe away every tear. And he, the text says, 
will ensure that pain will be no more. Pain will be no more. And this text shows us that is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah who makes that happen. And here's a little preview of Him doing it with one man one day a long time ago in the region of the Decapolis. A little bit of the foreshadowing of the coming glory we will all taste given to this man. So what do we do? We look forward to it. And we take into our own hearts the same things these people said. He has done all things well. And it is because that we know that Jesus does all things well that we can in our own lives, in our own suffering, we can say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. So Father, we are thankful for what you did in this text and what it reminds us about. We're thankful for the promise and the reminder that you do all things well. We are thankful for the reminder that you one day will remove all pain. Lord, we do thank you that there is coming a day that we will be healthy and strong forever. There is coming a day that we will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not be faint. That the whole curse on creation will be lifted entirely. And it's not yet. So help us to wait patiently. To trust you. Help us to remind each other of these truths during hard years. 2020 was hard. 2021 will be hard. This creation is broken. Help us to look forward to that new creation that you've promised us. And you've given us a little foretaste here in this text. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.